We're in Luke chapter 4 today. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 22 and in larger context down through verse 29. Some people live in a world, or they think they do, governed by a purposeful creator, while others think they live in a world where everything that happens is caused by the action of natural laws upon matter at any given point and at every point in time. According to them, even your thoughts about what I just said are determined by causes outside your control. Even your choice to think about how you think has been entirely determined by an antecedent state of events. The genes of your parents, the temperature of the room, and 10 billion times 10 billion variables going back to the beginning of time. If that's true, then life is literally pointless. That is, it doesn't point anywhere. It doesn't point to anyone. But the Gospel of Luke locates us in that other kind of world. The one governed by a purposeful creator. In fact, that theme runs through the entire Gospel. Luke wants us to know that we don't live in a deterministic world ruled by indifferent laws of physics. We're not slaves, as Dunn put it, to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. We live in a world ruled by a God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In the book, Words from the Fire, Albert Moeller cites a survey that was conducted in England some time ago in which researchers went door to door asking people about their belief in God. One of the questions was, do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of, of, of affairs, who performs miracles, etc.? The study took its title from the answer one respondent gave. No, he said, I don't believe in that God. I believe in the ordinary God. The ordinary God is one who can safely be ignored. And I think that's exactly what people do. But the God we see at work in Luke's gospel cannot be safely ignored. He shapes history. He changes the course of affairs and resolutely conforms everything that happens in your life and mine and everywhere else to the purpose of his will. I think every generation has its ordinary God, which is, at best, a flawed imitation, a caricature of the real one. When Luke was writing, people's ordinary God was largely unconcerned about people's needs and hurts, but was very particular about the performance of their religious duties. But Luke wants to introduce people to the other God, to the real one, the God of Jesus. Through Jesus' life and teaching, particularly his stories, Luke orients us to a gracious God who is working through Jesus to extend salvation to the world, even to those who live on the margins of society. Luke sees a world where God is constantly active and at work. Nothing is outside his purview and nothing escapes his notice. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground, Luke says, Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, apart from God's knowledge. Luke's God, and when I say that I mean the God that Jesus reveals in the Gospel of Luke, is so big that he can conform everything to the purpose of his will while allowing people the freedom to do what they want and choose what they will even when what they choose is to oppose him. The emphasis on God's purpose runs through this gospel and through Luke's other book that we know as the book of Acts. Men may ignore God, they may oppose him, 
But God firmly is in control. Luke expresses this idea with perfect clarity in a passage from the Acts. This man, this is St. Peter talking, this man, Peter says about Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. See, that's the God that Luke knows. The God who's fulfilling his purpose in spite of, and sometimes even through, the people who reject him. Now, Luke uses a variety of techniques to bring out the fact that God is at work in our world, that he's in control. I should say in his world. That would be more accurate. And one of the most common ways he does that is to show God fulfilling ancient prophecies in the present world. We're going to see that in our passage this morning. Another way Luke does that, presents this God as being purposeful and active in the world, is by repeatedly using words that denote purpose. For example, he uses the Greek word day, which means something like must, as many times as Matthew and Mark combined. Day indicates divine activity, divine necessity. In chapter 2, verse 49, chapter 4, verse 43, chapter 9, verse 22, chapter 16, verse 33, 17, 25, 19, 5, 22, 37, 24, 7, 24, 26, 24, 44. Jesus must be in his Father's house. He must preach the good news. He must suffer many things and be killed, and on and on and on. There's a purpose at work behind the events of life. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is predetermined but that God is active all around us all the time. The God of Jesus governs the world in such a way that some things may be, while other things must be, and we can only be what we're meant to be when we're aligned with God's purpose. There's a Greek word that is routinely translated purpose. It appears a total of 12 times in Scripture. Nine of them are in Luke's writings. He wants us to know that life is lived within the framework of God's purpose. And more importantly, he invites us to enter that purpose and merge our lives with it, to live on purpose. Jesus provides the best example of a life lived on purpose. He demonstrates how a life aligned with God's purpose acquires its own special meaning. For most people, life just happens. But Jesus lived on purpose. You can live on purpose. We see an example of that purposeful life in today's text, which will introduce some of those other themes that run through the gospel. Uh, Look at chapter 4, verses 14. We're going to read verses 14 through 22. Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, as he stood up, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, 
this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now there's an example of how Luke demonstrates God's purpose through the fulfillment of prophecy. But as I just mentioned, he also introduces in this text other themes that run through the gospel. One of those we're going to see as we go on in this study is the role of the Spirit. The role of the Spirit in Jesus' life and ours. Luke was intrigued by what it means to be spiritual with what the spiritual life looks like. He uses the Greek word translated spirit over a hundred times in Luke and Acts, of which approximately half refer to God's spirit. That's far more than any of the other writers. Luke believed that in Jesus, the spiritual life had been perfected. He had come to realize that the spiritual life is far more than the religious life. Most people didn't understand that. The spiritual life is far more than the emotional life. The spiritual life, Luke makes clear, is only lived by the power and under the influence of God's Holy Spirit. Now, by the time referred to in verse 16, Jesus' public ministry had been going on for a while, perhaps as much as for a year. His reputation as a teacher and healer had spread across all of northern Israel, but he had not yet been back home. Back to where he grew up. Not until, verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. Now, this is an aside, but notice that going into the, to the synagogue was his custom. His ethos, we might say, since the Greek word is the Greek word ethos, which is just how they say ethos. When the Son of God came to earth... He went to synagogue. It was his habit. Now, he could have said, I know more than the preacher does, so why should I go? He could have said, there is so much corruption and hypocrisy and organized religion, I don't want to be a part of it. But he didn't say those things that so many people say today. He knew that going to synagogue, or for that matter, going to church, was about honoring God and benefiting others. And so he went. It was his custom. The synagogue service was less formal then than it is now. Readers would be asked often at the last moment to read a selection from the law or the prophets, both actually were read, and to comment on it. If a rabbi or other distinguished guest was present, he would likely be asked to read and share his insights. Most rabbis who taught in the synagogue would frame their comments, almost all of them, would frame their comments by saying something like, Rabbi Eliezer has said, or Rabbi Shema has declared, but Jesus was known widely for speaking on his own authority, not on the borrowed authority of dead rabbis. When the synagogue ruler recognized him, his reputation was soaring at the time, he asked him to give a reading from the prophets, to which Jesus agreed. A volunteer leader, uh, a volunteer in that time, but the same person still works today, usually a paid position, gave Jesus the very large scroll of Isaiah. Jesus unrolled it, and found, even he had to look things up in the Bible, he had to find on this gigantic parchment without chapter or verse divisions the beginning of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord, by the way, there's the Spirit yet again, one of those hundred times and more, is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
When he finished reading, he stood up to read. When he finished, he stood up to honor the word of God. When he finished reading, he sat down. Which seems like an odd thing to us because he was about to teach. And our teachers routinely stand up when they're going to teach. But in that culture, it was different. Rabbi would sit down when he was ready to teach. And verse 20 says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. The expectancy in that synagogue was palpable. Jesus was one of their own. He really was becoming quite famous. They had heard incredible things about what he'd been doing, and now he was back home. That sense of anticipation increased when people realized which passage Jesus chose to read. Nowadays in the synagogue, there's a lectionary, and you read from selected texts on certain days. But as far as scholars can understand, that was not the case in the first century. There was a reading from the the, uh, law and a reading from the prophets. Jesus was asked to read from the prophets. Let me step back just a moment. Something you need to understand. Northern Galilee, where Jesus grew up, was a hotbed of messianic expectation. So when Jesus agreed and then chose to read and then chose a text about the Messiah, the atmosphere must have been electric. Did you notice the line, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me? The Greek word for anointed is krio, which is the root from which we get Christos, Christ. Both the Hebrew word that we pronounce as Messiah and the Greek word we pronounce as Christ mean the anointed. He's anointed me, the anointed one who will bring salvation. You can bet that everyone in the synagogue was wide awake. Their muscles were taut. When Jesus then sat down, looked them in the eye and said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It must have been like setting off a bomb. Now imagine that you were a member of that congregation. Maybe you'd be thinking, now wait a minute. What does he mean by saying that scripture is fulfilled today? That scripture. All he did was read it. Same way it's been read a thousand times before. So how's it fulfilled? Does he think we're the poor to whom he's just preached the good news? Does he think that we're prisoners who need freedom? Or the blind who need their sight restored? Are we the oppressed, the crushed is what that word means? Who need release? And that word is usually, or at least often, translated forgiveness. Are we the ones that need forgiveness? And here we've stumbled on another of those salvation themes that appear over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. The extent of salvation. Or put another way, those to whom salvation is extended. Now, we're going to spend quite a few weeks on this because it's such a major concern for Luke. How far does salvation go? To whom does it reach? More importantly, who gets left out? Those were issues that concerned Luke deeply. He alone of the Gospel writers records the question that someone asked Jesus. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Behind that question lies the assumption that salvation is valuable chiefly because its supply falls short of its demand. Salvation isn't for everyone, just for the winners. And everyone wants to be a winner. But Luke exalts in Jesus' teaching that God's salvation is in rich supply and is being extended to people normally considered outside the pale of grace. The least, the last, the lost. 
By the way, Luke uses those three words again and again in his gospel. Salvation extends to the poor, to the prisoner, to the blind, to the crushed. But who wants to be in that group? Or even wants them on his team? I think we'd prefer that salvation be limited to the good, or at least to the good enough. And you hardly ever meet someone who doesn't think he's good enough. And that may be the reason that Luke, alone among the gospel writers, includes Jesus' ironic story about a religious guy who thinks he's good enough because he's better than the loser down at the end of the other pew. It's human nature to think that salvation extends to the circle that we belong to. The good enough as I am circle. And then goes no further. Just beyond our circle, we see the least, the last, and the lost waiting to get in. And who wants to stand in line with them? When Jesus sat down and looked out at the people that he was about to teach, remember, he grew up here. He knew these people. He saw people who felt that God's salvation extended to Nazareth and then stopped. So when he gets ready to speak, he uses his message to show them that God's love runs deeper and his care goes further than they ever imagined. The people of Jesus' day, like people today, kept a kind of tally of who was in with God's salvation and who was out. And generally, anyone who was outside their particular circle was out. Most people in that day and culture would agree. For example, the prostitutes were out. And so were tax collectors. And people who never went to temple. And Samaritans. And everyone agreed the Gentiles were out. Salvation just wasn't for them. Not even God cared about Gentiles. They were the leastest, the lastest, and the lostest. So when Jesus wanted to get across the point that God's concern reaches beyond the people of Nazareth to the least, the last, and the lost, he reminded them of how God sent the two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha, to express his love to Gentiles. He even says, he didn't send them to Jews. He sent them to Gentiles. And not just the Gentiles, to Gentile women who were in their tally book, the furthest out, the very least, the remotest last. And Jesus said, God's love extends to them. No, it's still the case that people draw a line in the sand right where they are and say, anybody on the other side of the line is out. That line is sometimes a denominational line. Protestants exclude Catholics. They're on the other side of the line. Evangelicals draw the line so that the liturgical folk are on the other side. Pentecostals draw the line so that evangelicals are on the other side. Conservatives put liberals over there and vice versa. And while they may not say it, they automatically assume that God doesn't care about people on the other side of the line. You know, the gays, the atheists, the Muslims, the Jews, the younger generation, those old geezers. I got called that this week and it stuck. God cares about old geezers and the younger generation and Jews and Muslims and gays and atheists. 
The people in Jesus' hometown had drawn their own line in the sand, which Jesus very intentionally and unambiguously rubbed out. That made people very angry with him, as our text goes on to show. They, they pushed him out of the synagogue, and their town was built on a hill, and they intended to push him off the bluff. See, that was preparatory when you were going to stone somebody. The usual way of stoning them was pushing them off something and then throwing rocks on them. That's what they were going to do. Because he said, God's love doesn't stop here. It goes on to them. It goes on to the people you absolutely hate. He loves them. In fact, his insistence that God's salvation extended outside the lines is one reason that Jesus was rejected and eventually killed. Now, we could stop right there. Jesus rubs out the line. And we would have a nice, politically correct moral to this story. But we will have missed an important component. Yes, he rubbed out the line that kept all the losers out. But you need to know he drew another one. That other line was not drawn around a denominational distinctive. It's not around a moral condition. Jesus didn't draw that line around biblical inerrancy or the theory of the atonement. He drew that line around himself. If you stand outside him, you stand outside salvation. But there's plenty of room on the inside. Room for everyone. Everyone, that is, who will take his place alongside the least, the last, and the lost. Because that's where Jesus took his place. Now, I began this message by saying that Luke sees God's purpose operating in, in the world. That his hand is at work in the events of life. But I need to clarify it just a little. When I say he sees God's purpose at work in the world, I mean he sees God's purpose at work in the world in Jesus. That's extremely important to understand. For anyone who wants to lead a life on purpose, the closer you get to Jesus, the more purpose life has. The further away you get from Jesus, the less purpose life has. Apart from Jesus, life may have goals and objectives and ambitions, but in the end they won't mean anything. But with Jesus, life takes on meaning, and it's filled with purpose. Let me tell you about a young writer. A guy who's the same age as our oldest son. His name is Nick Vukacek, and he published a book this year called Limitless. Nick was born with a genetic disorder, a very rare genetic disorder, and has no arms or legs, just two small feet attached to his torso. Growing up, he struggled terribly, emotionally, physically, to accept his condition. But today, Nick's a follower of Christ and leads what he calls a ridiculously good life. I'm going to quote from him. When I'm asked how I can claim a ridiculously good life when I have no arms or legs, the people who ask that question assume I'm suffering from what I lack. They inspect my body and wonder how I could possibly give my life to God who allowed me to be born without limbs. Others have attempted to soothe me by saying God has all the answers and that when I'm in heaven I'll find out his intentions. 
Instead, he says, I choose to live by what the Bible says, which is that God is the answer. When people read about my life or witness me living, they're prone to congratulate me for being victorious over my disabilities. I tell them my victory came in surrender. It comes every day when I acknowledge that I can't do this on my own. So I say to God, I give it to you. The Lord took my pain and he turned it into something good. He gave my life meaning that no one and nothing else could provide it. And if God can take someone like me, someone without arms and legs, and use me as his hands and feet, he can use anybody. It's not about ability. The only thing God needs from you is a willing heart. Now there's a man who lives on purpose. He lives inside the circle where purpose and meaning are day-to-day realities. He lives inside the circle with Jesus. And there's plenty of room inside the circle. As the old gospel song put it, there's room at the cross for you, there's room at the cross for you, though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. And that's where you find purpose. And that's where you find meaning. And that's where you'll find the you that God always intended you to be. Now let's pray. God, I pray right now for those of us sitting in this room who have felt like everything has just been meaningless. That the pain, that the fear, the conflicts bring nothing to the table to make life worthwhile. God, I pray that you'll help us see that that's not true. Help us to see your hand at work. And when we can't see to believe, then instead of moving away, to move inside the circle right with you, right with your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.